The Dirt, North Carolina's only environmental policy and justice radio program. I'm your host, Brian Powell. I say this every time, but we have a lot to talk about, so I'm not going to waste any time today. Coming up, we have some reports on a major climate justice initiative that sprang into action in Atlanta this past weekend. Al Gore was there. Pete Davidson was there, apparently. And most importantly, hundreds of organizers, advocates, activists, leaders, a vast wealth of energy and brain power from North Carolina hopped across the state line to join the project and the movement. We'll discuss what it was, what it was all about, and what it's leading up to for North Carolina and the world. In just a few minutes, we're going to speak with Casey Cook, a land conservation biologist with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. They're doing a really cool thing. I think most of us in central North Carolina and other parts of the state and country have witnessed or been impacted by lightning speed development and growth and sprawl taking place across the state. And I think it would be pretty cool if developers at the state, county and municipal level uh, who are tasked with land use planning and, and transportation planning and all of that took the time to structure their plans in a way that takes wildlife and ecosystems into account in a responsible way. Casey Cook is working on that. She's going to talk to us about it. First, however, we have some updates about what's been going on around the General Assembly in Raleigh. The 2019 legislative session is ticking on. So in the studio to talk about the latest happenings, I have with me Matthew Starr, your Upper News Riverkeeper. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. And in studio as well is my colleague Jamie Cole, Environmental Justice, Air and Materials Policy Manager with the North Carolina Conservation Network. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So there's a lot happening. I guess, first of all, just to update people, the governor dropped uh, his budget recommendation request uh, a couple of weeks ago at this point. And there were a couple of environmentally related things in there, Jamie. Yeah, I mean, there were um, some some really good steps forward Um, there are some monies in there for um, appropriating 95 million um, up from 79 million currently in the base budget um, in uh, year two of the biennium um, the recommended appropriation totals 93 million and so that's a 17.5 percent increase in particular for the environment uh, we're really excited about the allocations toward the department of environmental quality um, Currently, it's at $193 million, um, and the budget comes from federal grants, fees, and other service-based receipts. So we're seeing uh, monies recommended to be put toward um, improving labs that have long needed improvement, um, toward um, addressing uh, water contamination issues. Um, so $6 million of the um, uh, 37 full-time equivalent positions to test, monitor, and increase detection and prevention of perfluorinated compounds, PFAS, which I'm sure you've talked about plenty on the show. <laughs> I um, think every single episode for a long, long time, like Gen X would yeah. be one example of that. And I think the lab that you were talking about is the Reedy Creek Lab, which I've heard people describe as, quote, decrepit. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but are we, Matthew, are we going to see a dime of that money in the, uh, in the governor's? More than likely not. And, you know, while it's nice that the governor included a lot of this in his budget, the fact that he knows he's not going to be the one carrying the, the water bucket on this one, you know, he could have gone a lot further. Um, 
would have liked to have always seen him go further. And like I said, he's he's not going to be the one that um, is putting dollars on these line items. It's going to be those the Republicans in the General Assembly that's going to be doing that. And we know the legislature has not released any details about what their budget, like kind of the line items are going to be. They did release the total sum that they want, and it's, I think, about a billion dollars less than uh, what the governor requested. So we'll see in the coming weeks what exactly that looks like. What else we got going on? There's a lead bill, lead in drinking water. Uh, we've yeah, got there's there. That's that's pretty exciting. I mean, eight million dollars to go to public schools to address the lead issue um, and have some pretty bold steps toward addressing um, contamination in our require, children's water. Yeah, require testing for lead, which right. is currently not mandated. Uh, so that's a really good thing. I, I think it sounds like it so far. Yeah, I know we've heard stories over the years of kids not being able to drink out of the water fountain at school. So they need to do something. Can't just keep going. It's going to get worse. I want to update listeners because there was a bill I think that we talked about that was filed. It definitely got some news coverage that would require anyone over the age of 16 to register their bike with the Department of Motor Vehicles. Just to reiterate, that is not going <laughs> that to happen. Hilarious. Uh, it was introduced at past first reading like every single bill does. And it, it is gone nowhere since it is not going to go anywhere since it is kind of wild that it got a sponsor in the first place. But honestly, not a new story. Forget about it. It's not happening. There's a scooter bill, however, that I think probably might make it somewhere. Electric scooter. Electrics. Yes. Thank you. Well, defining what it is yeah, is actually the bill uh, because <laughs> currently it, it, it's getting lumped in as a motor vehicle. And so the bill related to scooters, it does a lot of things, but the primary thing that it's attempting to do is kind of define what a scooter is so that it's not treated the same way as, you know, a truck, tractor trailer or something. I, there was some interesting, I guess, well, before we move on from the North Carolina General Assembly, there are some deadlines approaching, correct? Yeah, so we have plenty of time to see some more exciting <laughs> action come from uh, these bills. Uh, so we're looking at mid-April, uh, mid to late April, um, with some deadlines uh, in the House uh, for filing. And then we have... Uh, the Senate, there's a deadline mid-March that clearly that's already passed um, for local bills and then public and bills and resolutions. That deadline for filing is April 2nd. So uh, April is the hot date for most of the bills that we're looking at in the House and Senate. And let's let's be clear, that doesn't mean we're anywhere close to being done with the session. That is session. That's just a deadline to file new bills to be considered for the rest of the session. We, we're, we, we're a long way from, from the end here. Well, okay, that brings up a good point. When's this going to end? <laughs> you got your crystal ball out? June? May? July? <laughs> 2020? <laughs> Special sessions every few weeks um, until the end of time? Well, we've seen it happen before. What else are we... What, I mean, are there any bills that you're anticipating might be introduced? Um, I know we saw a, a farm bill was was just introduced this past week anything else might be coming energy I, 
this stage in the game, any surprise is probably not going to be a good surprise. I think um, the silence, the silence that I'm hearing <laughs> is indicative of the way that this legislative body has frequently done business, which is to have a whole lot of planning and meeting behind closed doors outside of the public eye where they get everything ready to go. And then when it hits, it hits and it moves very, very quickly uh, with very little opportunity for input from the public. So seems like maybe that's what could be happening again, or maybe they're just not going well, to do anything at all. I guess we'll have to wait and see. And anything that we think may not be moving or we thought defeated could always come up in the budget. So more bad news. You're so pessimistic. Yeah, that's me. I'll be optimistic. I'll say oh. that there are some really inspiring new legislators this year um, who I expect to see some some good environmental efforts move forward. That would uh, be lovely to see. Now let's just turn those efforts into action. <laughs> I'm the optimist in the room, so <laughs> I, I just had to put that out there. I dig it. <laughs> I dig it. There has been there has been a change, and there's hope on the horizon. Is what I'm hearing from you. And Matthew, what I'm hearing from you is something less. Um, speaking of pessimistic things, I uh, was looking at the news this week and uh, we're talking with the Wildlife Resources Commission later on. One of the things they do is this green growth two box thing that we'll talk about. But another thing that the Wildlife Resources Commission does, and they do a lot, by the way, people should kind of get familiar with with them because they, they do just a really wide variety of things, everything from game management uh, to endangered species stuff, to, you know, development stuff. And they arrest poachers. And there was a really interesting poaching mm -hmm. arrest, correct? Yeah. So investigate uh, poachers. apparently a uh, uh, man from Bolivia, that's, that's North Carolina, was found to be poaching Venus flytraps. And this isn't anything new i feel like i read something about this once a year maybe once every other year well for listeners who don't know venus flytraps grow only only in here. north carolina yep. down outside of the wilmington area basically and now and then you've get you've got people who try to poach them uh this man is accused of i guess charged with 73 felonies uh booked in jail under a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar bond for poaching countless numbers of Venus flytraps they found and they caught them on camera allegedly. Uh, so y'all don't poach <laughs> wildlife. Yeah. Noted. Thank you. So real, real quick, real quick plug for wildlife resource commission. They're the officers that enforce our fishing regulations, our hunting regulations, make sure people aren't taking endangered species, make sure they're taking the right size of fish. Um, and they are few and far between. Sometimes they won't even visit a county, but a couple of times a year. So that's another thing that could be fixed legislatively is to refund or fund additional positions within the Wildlife Resource Commission so that they can do, our, do their job and protect us and our natural resources. I don't know the history of the budget of the Wildlife Resources Commission uh, very closely, but if it follows the Department of Water Resources and in, in aspects of the Department of Environmental Quality generally, which it's a very separate thing, but they've seen slashed budgets over the past decade, very, very deep to the bone um, cuts and, and cuts in spending. So 
I would imagine if it's the same, yeah, there just needs to be more cops on the beat and you've got to pay them. So let's get back to what other folks are doing in other parts of the country because uh, we need protections for people from poachers, from PFAS and Gen X, mm -hmm. from, you know, all so, kinds of things. So I actually forgot to mention, and you know, the governor is proposing additional funds for DEQ, which is very much needed. Um, and in specifically, there would be uh, three new positions to help with the animal feeding operations program um, and $125,000 in grants to go toward um, ver various monitoring uh, requirements that farmers are going to have to do. Um, and that's as required under, under the civil rights um, settlement. And so um, there are definitely uh, investments needed to be made into the department for all of these reasons. And, and speaking of animal operations, what's the latest update on the permit we discussed a few times on the show uh, related to the industrial hog operations and poultry operations in the state? Yeah, right now we are uh, waiting to see. Uh, there have been uh, there has been so many um, impacted folks, uh, advocacy groups, uh, people just speaking up and out for impacted communities around these operations in support of uh, progress by the Department of Environmental Quality on this permit. And so we are really hoping that the draft that they put forward that we commented on, uh, Conservation Network commented as well as several other organizations saying we support uh um, improved uh, monitoring requirements um, uh, and inspections, um, reporting requirements, transparency overall. And so uh, we're expecting in April to, to see what that, that new permit will look like. And we're hoping that the improvements that were in the draft uh, are still there. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I mean, I think despite, despite some of the claims that you hear from industry, uh, record, reporting requirements and, and the transparency uh, in the way that the industry operates is, is very basic. Basic. It's been less than basic. It's very unburdensome. They get to keep their records in house on their own uh, properties, and there there just isn't very. The inspections are relatively quick when they happen. They don't happen all that frequently. I think there's a lot of kind of very common sense fundamental things that hopefully will will be in this uh, final permit draft. Yeah, and if the industry is going to keep standing behind their stance that they're not polluting communities, that they're not polluting our environment, then they should be a fan of transparency and they should welcome it. And I think it's important to know, in addition to the governor's, uh, the money that he's put into his budget to support these different requirements uh, for farmers, I think that, it, you know, it, it it has to be emphasized that the advocates who are who are working with communities do not want to see these animal operations have to go out of business. Uh, we are simply asking for folks to be better neighbors and to uh, employ technologies that protect their neighbors. Fantastic. We are talking with Jamie Cole. She is an environmental justice, air and materials management uh, policy manager at the North Carolina Conservation Network and Matthew Starr the Upper Noose Riverkeeper. This is WNCU. So we've got coal ash, a coal ash deadline coming up as well. Potentially big news. I guess it's big news no matter what happens. What's what's going to happen, Jamie? Oh, <laughs> man. Matthew, whoever wants to talk about coal ash. What's going to happen? Well, what could happen? 
everything from requiring the cleanup, the total cleanup of all the remaining coal ash sites across our state, such as already been mandated at HF Lee, which is just outside of Goldsboro, that all the way to leaving all of it in place and allowing it to continue to pollute communities and the environment. There's a huge swath that this way could cut. And I think the Department of Environmental Quality is required to publish their recommendations for what happens to the coal ash on the 1st of April. That's right. So we will be watching that very closely. All right. I think that that was a lot. We covered a lot of ground here. I want to update people on a bill that I thought was interesting. It, it would make the Osprey, the official state raptor of North Carolina. It went to the Wildlife Resources Committee. It went to a couple of other committees. It was it was favorable from those committees who reported favorably. It is now in house rules, which may have killed it. So don't get your hopes up if you love Ospreys, but we might be seeing an Osprey state raptor. All right, <laughs> stay tuned for our next segment. We are going to sit down with an attorney and environmental advocate. She is the North Carolina NAACP's 2014 Humanitarian of the Year. She was chosen in 2018 to be a part of the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality's Environmental Justice and Equity Advisory Board. She was just identified by a leading environmental news outlet as one of the top 50 green innovators and influencers to watch in 2019. Who is it? Stick around to find out. You are listening to The Dirt on WNCU-FM. You're listening to The Dirt on WNCU-FM. I'm your host, Brian Powell. We have a wonderful guest and well-respected environmental advocate joining us for a conversation today. I set this up a little bit over the break. Uh, Listeners already know a little bit about her because she has been with us the entire time. It is Jamie Cole, North Carolina Conservation Network's environmental justice policy manager, also one of Gris's top 50 green innovators and influencers in 2019. Jamie, thank you for sitting down for kind of an extended conversation. I thought you are also a North Carolina Central Law alum, and I thought it would be interesting to for listeners to get to know you a little bit better, and you're gracious enough to play along with that. So thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So let's get, like, let's get the kind of generic easy question out of the way why are you working on the environment what about the environment are you passionate about why why are you in this space so i think my answer is a little different than most folks my uh draw to the environment is actually through my passion for civil rights and justice and um, that was my introduction to the environment was environmental justice. Um, and that was my context. That was my lens uh, of the issue. And uh, once I entered into the world of environmentalism, that's when I became passionate about the environment as a whole. But I think the the human and health impacts were what first drew me uh, to to the issues. Was it just generally the work or were there particular communities or stories that you saw or came in contact with or experienced yourself that kind of drew you in? Good question. So I would say that the coal ash spill 
um, uh, that happened, uh, when was that? In 2014? Mm-hmm. Um, the Dan River coal ash spill. Um, I was still um, working with the NAACP at the time. And while I we very much prioritized environmental justice issues, that was the first time uh, with my time in North Carolina that a major catastrophe had happened that really drew all the whole spectrum of folks working with communities across the state. So not just environmental groups, it was, uh, you know, the the educational groups, the voting groups, the everyone who um, cares about um, folks that um, may not have a voice uh, really stepped up and it, it, it inspired me to, to learn more. Um, and I think that was my first spark. So you, you dove right in. You've been making a lot of waves in the environmental space and the environmental justice space in particular. You were named to the North Carolina. This name is always just kind of absurdly long, but the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality Secretaries Environmental Justice and Equity Advisory Board. You did it. Yes. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> so you were you were named to that in 2018. There have been a few meetings of that body. Have you learned anything from it? What's that experience been like? I think the number one thing that comes to my brain when I think about what I've learned over the last little, it's been a little under a year, is the the vast like expertise that it takes to really address environmental justice. Um, the board is comprised of so many diverse uh, backgrounds of folks, uh, expertise that um, I had not appreciated before being on this board. I did not have an appreciation for all that it took to really have robust conversations about policy, regulations, permits. Um, and so I think that was that's definitely been an advantage to me as uh, over this past, um, like I said, a little under a year of, of working with that board. And being think, a part of the board. Is it is it planned to continue? Like, is this indefinite? Are you? Yeah, I'm hoping it it continues and it grows and it becomes stronger. Um, and, you know, the support uh, across the state um, for the the work that folks want to see us do has been uh, tremendous. <laughs> uh, we've I've, I've definitely had this the side of um the 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 issues that I, I'm usually on the other side of. So as an advocate, I'm usually the one uh, writing the letters and 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 making the phone calls to decision makers. And so being on this board, uh, uh, supporting uh, or advising a state agency has been uh, definitely a, a a valuable perspective in my advocacy journey. Okay. Well, that no, that's that's good. That so, do you get a lot of emails? From the public do you get i mean social media are people like pinging you like what has it been yeah it's interesting because um as an advocate with a statewide organization um a lot of folks already work with me um and so yes i i have a lot of i have i have a lot of uh after hours conversations um with folks who who um are excited about the board uh but also want to to really push us, right, and push us in the direction that we that we uh, have the potential to go um, and have the voice that we're we have the potential to have, um, and like I tell folks, um, you know, we're we are experiencing growing pains, and so there is a lot of 
procedural and structural things that we're figuring out. And I think a lot of boards go through that. And so especially at this level. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I appreciate folks' patience, but I also understand the urgency of the issues. And so we're we're um, yeah, that that's definitely been something that is 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 eye opening for me. <laughs> I we talk on the show quite a bit about environmental justice, obviously, and the fact that the environmental justice movement, uh, according to uh, you know a lot of people, essentially got started in Warren County here in the late 1970s uh, with the Warren County PCB landfill fight. And we spoke with Dolly Burwell on the show about that, you know, lying down in front of trucks and getting arrested. And that was before a lot of the people in this space were born. I think everyone in this studio, for sure. <laughs> so the the conversation about environmental justice and what it means in the movement began building a long, long time ago. But in many ways, it feels like the conversation's kind of only just now really beginning in certain circles in the states. Um, and so I'm I'm like wondering from you, because there are still a lot of forces who even resist the concept of environmental racism and environmental justice, is 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 white America, is is wealthy America, are are the entrenched kind of powerful influences in not just the state but but the country, are they ready to have an honest conversation about environmental justice and racism, about climate justice? Yeah, will they, will they ever be? That, that's an excellent question, Brian. And I don't know that I can give you a direct answer. Um, I am an attorney by training. And so <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I'm still working on that. Uh, it depends. It depends, right? It depends. So first, you got to get, get folks to acknowledge that racism exists. And the same folks that believe that climate change exists don't necessarily understand racism. And potentially their role in structural racism and their benefits from that. And and so there are two worlds that are needing to to come together, um, the traditional environmental world, the climate advocates who we, you know, you know, a lot of times they may lean progressively into the left, but there's still a lot of work that has to be done uh, to really um, understand basic terms like equity, uh, discrimination, racism, those that terminology has to be integrated into the climate discussion. And, and we've seen events recently that uh, that work toward that type of melding of issues. But until we can have really honest conversations about our role um, in uh, in in kind of perpetuating these disproportionate impacts of climate change and our role in maybe not considering the most impacted communities when coming up with solutions to climate change, um, those things have to be rolled into one conversation. And right now they're happen happening separately. But I am inspired, like I said, by events like, and maybe we'll talk about this soon, but uh, events like the climate reality training that just took place this past weekend, uh, where those conversations were able to happen. Yeah, I want to talk about that right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk We'll talk with others who were, who were present at the training later on in the show, but you were you were present. It was uh, the Climate Reality Project had a, a training for leaders, activists, advocates from all over the country, all over the world to come together to learn about climate justice and to learn about how they can kind of push this movement forward. What was it like? You know, what was your takeaway? 
Yeah. So, you know, in North Carolina, we have, and, and that event was awesome. I'm, I'm going to build to that. So, did in, you meet Pete Davidson? <laughs> I didn't. Uh, however, I, I posted about it on Instagram. I don't <laughs> so I felt like I did. Um, but I, in North Carolina, we have some awesome, awesome climate justice advocates. Um, uh, Nikisha Glover in Charlotte with Soul Nation um, and some other efforts. And we have folks. She's also who, part of the Chris Top 50. She is. And I, I'm really happy to give her a shout out. So, um, you know, and, and folks that that organize the climate justice summit that happens every year. So climate justice um, is something that in North Carolina, we're not unfamiliar with, right? And the Environmental Justice Network in North Carolina also uh, prioritizes uh, those issues. So, you know, coming from North Carolina and going to an event like that in in, in Atlanta hosted by Climate Reality, um, it, it was really powerful. There was over 200 people from North Carolina alone at this training. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, having the opportunity to be in a room like that with people across the from across the world, not just the country, but across the world, uh, was really eye opening. And I think it was like I said, it was a major step in having uh, someone like Al, Al Gore, who, who in some ways can be a polarizing figure uh, to stand up and talk about justice and talk about um, equity. Uh, it, it, it's just something that we just have to have more of in order to make it a, a normal thing um, in order to get to what you were asking me before about like, are people ready? Uh, we have to get ready. And I think that those types of convenings get get the um, folks who are going to do the, the, the smaller trainings ready to go out and do the work. So you went to Central for law school. Is there is there a favorite memory you have? That's a really... Good question, because I do have a lot of good memories from Central. Uh, being a legal eagle is uh, a, a major honor for me, and I carry that around North Carolina um, very proudly. Um, I had some amazing professors uh, that really inspired me and propelled me into my first opportunity after law school, which was the North Carolina NAACP. And so professors like um, Irving Joyner um, and April Dawson and Reddick's, Professor Reddick Smalls, um, th th these these people really instilled into me the importance of our 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 rights <laughs> as as a people, not just um, as uh, Americans, but as uh, as citizens um, who are uh, considered minorities um, of uh, people who uh, maybe not maybe don't have the same advantages as um, other folks. I think that was really instilled into me in a legal context, but propelled me to want to do um, the policy work that would be able to change the laws to advantage the people who are usually disadvantaged. So all that to say, my favorite memory is just those types of values being instilled into me through the coursework I was able to have. So I want to ask you a couple more things. Um, one for me, environmentalism is, uh, I think for a lot of people, there's, there's, it, it's not just about the science and the work. There's a spiritual element. There's an artistic element that ties into this work that inspires people, uh, a lot of people to be in this space. And so I'm wondering from you first, does your faith motivate or inform your environmental advocacy? Uh, and, and, and if so, how? Well, answer that first. I think in two ways it does. Yes. I think that um, I feel a moral obligation. Right. So my morals in dictate 
how I treat people and how I treat the environment that we are living in. And so that is definitely a huge part of what propels me to want to to even from the beginning, when, like I was saying, civil rights and justice and equity, those are the things that have always propelled me. And so those things are priorities to me and values to me because of my morals um, and, and my faith. And so, um, you know, that is definitely something that um, carries carries me on even when it gets pretty <laughs> weary. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, this is a this is a, a difficult state landscape to do this kind of work. Um, the other question I had was, artistically speaking, I'm a, I love poetry. I love photography. I've spoken with some people on this show who are also poets and, you know, write about different environmental or environmental justice themes. And so I want to know from you and from anybody else I talk to in the future, what is your inspiration? What, what, what poem, book, photo, painting, comic strip, film, TV show, what kind of thing inspires you? Yeah, I think I have to tie in the faith um, answer as well as the uh, as as well as kind of my background into the to answering this question. I think the heart of it is just folks that that look like me. Right. So black women who have uh been really um, influential and powerful throughout my life. Um, I grew up with a black woman pastor. I grew up with a um, an icons who who were uh, black women. And uh, my grandmother was the first uh, black woman woman post post. What is the word? The head of the post office in her <laughs> in her town. I mean, I, I have um, really had some great examples, and so uh, my favorite poet growing up was Nikki Giovanni, and and so um, when I think about my current inspiration, Michelle Obama, I <laughs> and her her recent book Becoming, uh, that just seems to be fitting in with kind of the theme of the most inspirational things to me throughout my life. And and the in Becoming by Michelle Obama was just a, a testament and affirmation to the work that I'm passionate about that might not be as lucrative as uh, a lot of my classmates who left Central Law School, but I really think, um, you know, after reading that book, it was affirming because I'm doing the work that I'm passionate about. It ties with my morals. It ties with my values. And and I find comfort in that. And so um, with with uh, with that, I think that's that's what inspires me right now. You can't go wrong with Michelle Obama. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Jamie Cole. Environmental Justice, Air and Materials Policy Manager with the North Carolina Conservation Network and one of GRIS top 50 green innovators and influencers to watch in 2019. We're going to go to a break. You are listening to The Dirt, brought to you by the North Carolina Conservation Network and WNCU 90.7 FM in Durham, North Carolina. back you're listening to the dirt on wncu 90.7 fm i'm your host brian powell this past week in atlanta thousands of people from across the southeast 
including several hundred from North Carolina alone, gathered together in Atlanta to talk about climate justice with a person who might be the most well-known climate advocate on the planet, Al Gore. His group, the Climate Reality Project, led a training workshop, a kind of proselytizing boot camp for activists, advocates, and faith leaders who will return to their communities with sharpened messaging, organizing, and advocacy tools that they will use to fight climate change. William Barber III, a strategic partnerships associate with the Climate Reality Project, and one of the leaders on environmental justice issues within the new Poor People's Campaign, summed up the event. You know, I think we were really able to identify um, some of the conceptual synergies when we talk about environmental injustice, um, those deep-seated legacies, um, and its connection to detrimental climate change. Um, You know, we've gotten several calls from several prominent leaders who are doing, you know, this environmental justice work uh, in North Carolina and surrounding states who just, uh, you know, said that they were really pleased with where we landed. Um, So, you know, what we're hoping is that this will, you know, build some momentum that can be brought back to our current context of North Carolina, uh, to the issues that we have going on, you know, everything from the coal ash fight right now to the decisions around the CAFOs, um, you know, to our fight right now around the ACP and MVP pipelines, unnecessary expansions of fossil fuel infrastructure. You know, we're really hoping that we've catalyzed some cohesion uh, that makes it more apparent for us, uh, you know, that a united front is needed on this on these issues. One thing that we did um, as the North Carolina Poor People's Campaign, the Ecological Justice Committee, is actually on yesterday, we had our second ecological justice uh, meeting where we um, brought together people, environmental groups from across the state um, who were really, uh, you know, excited about the potential energy, who had agreed even before Atlanta that we needed to figure out some cohesion um, and had our second meeting to figure out what some of those next steps uh, collectively looked like. Um, So I'm excited about that. I think we're really you know, starting to get in step in our engagements and figuring out how we can have, uh, you know, a collective emboldened push that is stronger together. Caroline Armijo, an environmental advocate from Greensboro, North Carolina, said aspects of the event that focused on faith voices and on the energy young people are bringing to the climate fight were particularly motivating for her. And I should mention that this is about the 40th time that Al Gore has hosted one of these climate trainings. However, while previously they were exclusively focused on a scientific framework, this time, for the first time, he's included a, quote, moral call to action on the climate crisis. And that meant having an interfaith mass meeting at historic Ebenezer Baptist Church, featuring the Reverend Raphael G. Warnock and the Reverend William J. Barber II. To just hear, you know, I think a lot of people don't have exposure to all of those different faith voices at one time, and to hear the common thread um, of loving one another and working together to address this issue. That, I mean, we are in a crisis moment, and so just kind of coming together with all faith, um, I felt was just a really powerful moment 
and I appreciated that a lot. I also really love the use to hear them speak and just to be so energized and aware of how we need to move forward. It was the same day as the climate strike. And I mean, the speakers were just so powerful. And I have a daughter who's almost 10. And so um, just to kind of see that opportunity that all of our youth can move towards taking on these leadership roles is really exciting. Now that she's back in North Carolina, Armillo says attendees are ready to put what they learned to work. It feels like all the components are in place, but we just, you know, it's kind of just sort of getting everybody connected. So I think that that was really a key part of it. You know, like how do we, how do we come back and stay connected? And, you know, North Carolina's always been a leader uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> so like, how do we, you know, just take this and run with it, basically. We also spoke with Anita Sima, who was an attendee at the Atlanta event and is also a member of the North Carolina Poor People's Campaign. She talked a little bit about why the event was important and where the Poor People's Campaign and the climate change fight in North Carolina will go from here. I, I really appreciated the Atlanta training. I felt like it gave me a lot of important tools to aid in my efforts to combat climate injustice and the climate crisis. Um, I felt like I could really tell the effect that the Poor People's Campaign and Reverend Barber in particular has had on Al Gore and Climate Reality Project because they really had have adopted this language of um, justice and fusion politics and a movement and, and are treating climate justice as a social issue and not just a scientific issue or an issue of information. Um, and I really see the Poor People's Campaign as fitting in with Climate Reality Project because, as we know, climate change and environmental injustice are interlinked with racism and poverty and militarism and war um, because 70% of coal ash communities are poor communities. And in North Carolina, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline cuts through the land of at least five different indigenous groups. Um, so all of these issues are, are linked and I can, I really see um, the possibility of, you know, joining forces and forming a coalition in that way. So we'll be announcing soon an, a real national emergency truth and poverty tour in North Carolina and in other states too. So the idea is that our president is saying that there's a national emergency on the border, but actually we know where the real emergency is. It's in our states um, because the injustices of racism and poverty and war and environmental injustice haven't been addressed. So we'll be touring around the state and um, you can definitely expect to see us lift up some issues of environmental injustice in this state. Oh, and if you're looking for more information about how the Poor People's Campaign is fighting for environmental justice, here's the info. Uh, You can find information about our campaign on Facebook. Our um, link is www.facebook.com slash ppcnc. And you can find more information about the campaign generally um, at www.poorpeoplescampaign.org. 
Okay, we are speaking with Casey Cook, a land conservation biologist with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Thank you for being here, Casey. Absolutely. We're happy to, that you uh, had us for this interview. Thank you. So tell me what the Green Growth Toolbox is. The Green Growth Toolbox is coordinated by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, and it's a program that implements the North Carolina Wildlife Action Plan. It's a technical assistance tool for communities, local government, planners, planning-related boards, and developers. The toolbox provides maps of priority wildlife habitat, planning techniques, recommendations, and case studies for conservation of priority wildlife habitat that can be used in local land use and development planning, policy making, and development design. So what? tell me a, a couple of things. One, what's a priority wildlife? Um, can you explain a little bit for listeners who aren't familiar what, what that is exactly? Sure. Um, priority wildlife species are over... 450 uh, wildlife species in our state that are of the greatest conservation need. These are species that there is concern because of dramatic or, you know, steady declines in their population numbers. Um, There's concern that we want to try to keep them off of any federal um, endangered or threatened species list. Um, It's it's better to be proactive than reactive. Um, And so their habitats of these species are the habitats that these species depend on. Um, a good example in North Carolina is the longleaf pine ecosystem. Uh, it used to range over 90 million acres across the southeast, and now it's down to 5% of its historic range. Mm-hmm. And that ecosystem depends on periodic low-intensity fire that would come through naturally. And the wildlife that depend on that habitat type depend on that natural fire. And so um, those species are ones that some of them are federally endangered currently, but there are many that we're working diligently to keep off of the federal endangered species list. And those are our priority wildlife and habitats, an example. Cool. Yeah, I know we've on the show we've talked about the Carolina Mad Tom a little bit and the Noose Water Dog. Uh, I would guess the hellbender, some people refer to it as, I would assume that those are some of the things on on the list. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So from my understanding, you know, you, you, uh, you have these kinds of workshops and you provide these tools for the kinds of people that you listed, people who are in development, people who are city planners, transportation uh, planning folks and that kind of thing. What, I guess one, what are what are some of the tools and, and information? It sounds like a lot of this is getting people access to information um, that they don't have. Um, what what is some of the information that they don't have? And then and following that, um, what this is a, a voluntary program. So I'm curious as to you know what you think is the most effective or convincing argument for a developer or or a planning authority to to consider implementing some of the things that you recommend. Okay, great. Yes, so um, the top threat to our priority wildlife in our state is development. Um, And so the Green Growth Toolbox aims to provide uh, mainly local land use planners with the tools to integrate priority wildlife habitat conservation into their planning. So we can't buy all of the land that would be needed to conserve our wildlife in the future. So we are relying on local governments to consider conservation 
um, of priority habitats in their land use planning so that we can keep habitats connected for wildlife across the landscape. Um, the approach is to train interested communities in priority areas. Um, local governments or councils of government host the Green Growth Toolbox wor- workshops and help us with invitations and refreshments, and they really do a lot for us, and we're grateful for that. We also uh, provide design, conservation design lunch and learn workshops for planning consultants, which are short, you know, um, workshops for planning consulting firms. Yeah, you've got one of those um, coming up, right? Yeah, we have a Green Growth Toolbox workshop, a half-day workshop coming up for the town of Morrisville, hosted by the town of Morrisville, and it's from 1 to 4.30 p.m. on the 28th of March at the Morrisville Town Hall. So how can folks learn a little bit more about the Green Growth Toolbox and other things that the Resources Commission is doing? Um, they can go to our website at ncwildlife.org, and then if you want to go to the Green Growth Toolbox website, it's um, ncwildlife.org ncwildlife.org slash green growth as one word. Okay. Casey Cook, land conservation biologist with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Okay, y'all. We are officially out of time. You are listening to The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. As always, you can continue to listen to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud and on WNCU.org. We are also now on Spotify. Search for The Dirt on Spotify or The Dirt FM on SoundCloud and give us a review while you're there, please. Also, look us up on Twitter at The Dirt FM. Lots of bonus content and conversation about the topics that we discuss on the show. Thank you to our many guests for your contributions to today's program. Thank you to the unbelievable production staff here at WNCU 90.7 FM. Until next time, Be good, y'all.